The following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Community Church in Oldham County, Kentucky. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. And we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to anyone who happens to listen. For more information, please visit our website at ashlandcc.net. Thanks for listening. I'd like to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious words uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll be continuing our study through uh, 1 Corinthians, and this week our attention is turned towards the Lord's Supper. But first, I'd like to offer my, my thanks to, to Caleb Morton for being here and worshiping with us. Could we give him a hand for being here for us? Uh, brother, you are a blessing uh, whenever we can have Dan here with us, so we're thankful for you. But I invite you to stand for a reading of God's perfect and precious word. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry and another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I won't. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that through the power of your word, you would illumine our minds to the realities that we can find in your scriptures. I pray that the Spirit would be active in this place. I pray that you would help us to understand what you're trying to tell us as a congregation, as a body, as one loaf together. I pray that you would rid us of our sin and help us to come to the table of grace and feast. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, recently God has been teaching me some lessons just through my normal everyday life. I've been learning about the importance of repetition. And some of the guys in here know what I'm talking about. I just, I just turned 32. And so once you start getting up lower 30s, mid 30s, 
you know, the doctor's appointment conversations you have with your physician begin to change. I remember I used to go to the doctor and it was maybe 15 minutes tops here, healthy as a horse, everything's great. But my most recent one, it was nothing alarming, but he said, you know, your, your blood pressure is a little elevated. And I was like, you know, that's strange because I took a walk last month. You'd think it would be lower. And the doctor's no longer interested in what I'm doing on occasion. They're like, what are you eating every day? What are you, what are you doing for exercise daily? What, is, what are your routines like? And there's often, we, we often don't see them because of the sheer repetitiveness of our day-to-day lives. You know, one routine that I've, I've gotten into since I've been able to work at home, I used to be deprived of the ability to go and wake my children up. They wait, I'm gone from the house before they wake up. So when I'm working from home, I like to go up and wake up the kids. And as you, as you all well know, we just had our first girl, Eliza, and she's been getting a little special treatment. Usually the boys, they, get, they just get picked up and thrown out and let's go. Now, Eliza, I'm, I'm trying to t- learn how to treat her a li- little differently after having four boys. I'm trying to reinforce some of these distinctions. And so when I get her up, I wake her up, I say, hey, baby. And then I pick her up. And so every time I wake up Eliza, I pick her up and I, I caress her little cheek. And then I sing the Eliza song, which I'm not going to burden you with at this moment. But it goes something like this, Eliza. So I'll just sing her a little song just to wake her up very pleasantly. And I had been doing this every morning that I had been home. And just this past week, I picked up Eliza and I went up and I went to go pick her up and caress her cheek and say, Eliza. And she looked at me and she goes, wow, 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 wow. I've got a few theories. Theory number one, her brothers put her up to that. (laughs) Theory 1B, her mother put her up to that. But my theory is that Eliza has been immersed in this habit of me touching her face and then singing a song. And she says, oh, this is just what we do when we wake up. You know, so, you know, I'm supposed to touch his face. The velocity, that's chef's choice. It's whatever, you know, that's not, that's not important. Not an important detail. So she, she lights me up like that. And the, the power of that repetition, I didn't see that coming at all. It was just this habit that she had, she had picked up. And it needs to occur to us that we've made a massive change in our church this year. You know, we used to have the Lord's Supper quarterly. That means we would have it four times a year on fifth Sundays. So at the very most, you were taking the the body and and the blood. You're taking the, the bread and the wine four times a year. Now, most of you serve in some capacity in the children's ministry. Uh, you might have a, a sick day one day, but on average, we're taking the Lord's Supper between two and three times a year. Now, this year, we've moved the Lord's Supper to every single week, no matter what. So we're jumping from three times a year, Probably we've each probably taken, for those believers in here, for those who are, are members who are taking the Lord's Supper, who are members of a local body, are going to take the Lord's Supper between uh, 45 and 50 times this year. That's a massive leap. And if we don't go back and, and re-examine what the Lord's Supper is, there may be some unintended 
uh, maybe some unintended uh, side effects that come along with that if we don't understand it rightly. So I'm, I'm glad that the Lord has brought us here uh, today. And Paul starts off his, his, this section of 1 Corinthians with a very stern word. Look at verse 17. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So this is an extension of his previous argument regarding the head coverings uh, that women were wearing to acknowledge their submission to God and their submission to husband. He's commending them for, for keeping the, the symbols of their submission to God and through their, to their husbands. He's saying, I commend you for this. But now he continues and says, okay, you're doing well here. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. This makes me think of my ordination. Uh, I recently went to my ordination council. By God's grace, I passed it. But all the ordained men in the room got to take a moment and say, Joe, what are you great at and what are you terrible at? What are the things that we see as a potential danger to your ministry? And I'm not going to get into the details, but I will tell you one list was longer than the other, and I'll leave your imagination to, to run free with which one was longer, what I was doing well or which one I was doing poorly. But he's saying, in the following instructions, I won't commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but it's worse. Could you see, could, have you read a more strict judgment against the church in the entire Bible? Here is a principle we can find. A church's existence is not necessarily a good thing. The fact that Christians gather together is not inherently a good thing. Paul is saying, it's worse. You should just close the doors. You shouldn't meet this Sunday. You would be doing good to the kingdom if you stopped your ministry. Now, these harsh words come out of a, 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 what I believe to be a context of his relationship with this church. You can read more about this in Acts chapter 18. But the, the origin of the Corinthian church is a great story, but one that has an, a strange ending. It begins, and you can look at Acts 18. If you'd like to turn there, you can, but I encourage you to read it later. There's a whole account of the beginnings of this church. Paul arrives in Corinth, and he meets with a family of tent makers named Priscilla and Aquila. And he stays with them. He's a tent maker as well. And he practices uh, tent making during the week. And then on the Sabbath day, he's going to the synagogues, and he's arguing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That he is the one who all of the Old Testament has been pointing to. That he is the one we have been waiting for. Now, this was not a popular teaching at the time. This is not a time where you can go and find a Christian church on every corner. The Jews were, re were revolted. The, 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 the sense is that they're disgusted by the teaching. This is a great heresy. And they drove him out. He then preached to a man named Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, and by God's grace, Crispus believes the gospel. This man who is a champion of the old ways has now seen Messiah Jesus as the focal point of the Old Testament and the entire scriptures. And because of this conversion, they're starting to get some traction. And then we see Corinthians coming to faith in Christ. They begin meeting together. But he's, and Paul stayed with them for over a year, instructing them in how to be a church. But then, after about a year, the Jews had had enough. And they made what it says is a united effort against Paul. 
So they attacked Paul, and Paul begins to realize, I'm doing more harm to the church by staying here than it is if I depart and move on. The, the attacks are focused on me. So imagine Paul getting on his, on his boat, I don't know, or he took, I don't know, I don't know where, geography. He's on a boat, he's on a donkey, he's got to get to Syria. And he's on his way to Syria, and I'm trying to imagine what would Paul be praying for those believers. I imagine it would be something like this. Oh God, would you protect this body of believers against the outside forces that seek to collapse them? I pray God that this church would be, a, a, would be an outpost for your kingdom and would resist and be, and be preserved from the violence that outsiders want to do, that the culture is trying to inflict on the church. But here we see a different problem. That's not what we see at all. Look at verse 18 through 19. It says, for he, he identifies two problems. Here's the first. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. You see, the problem that Paul is seeing is the quite the opposite has happened. Rather than being distinct from the culture, rather than facing persecution and succumbing to it, they've become just like the culture. All of the divisions that existed outside of the church have made their ways into the church. There ought to be no division in Christ's church between rich or poor, between any racial group. There are no divisions to be found in the church, but there is one that Paul does come in. Now you say that doesn't sound quite right, but look here. In verse 19, he says, there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That word genuine is vital. There is only one distinction to be made in the church. Those who are saved in Christ, who are Christ followers, and those who are not. That is the only separation that ought to exist in this church. Now, I'm not saying, oh, if you're not a Christ follower, you shouldn't be here. We long for you to be here. We've prayed for you to be here. But we are called as a church to make a distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are out of Christ. Such an important part of my own testimony is the first time someone told me that I was not a Christian. I went to Catholic Mass. I lived an okay life. You know, but someone came along and said, you are not in Christ, brother. You are not a Christian. When they told me that, it wasn't an unkindness. It was the greatest kindness, and it was the first step on my way to believing in Jesus You know, but this word here is that, that, that who is genuine among you, there's, there's a very specific sense the scripture means. It's, it's those who have been approved. So when you think of genuine, when we think of the word genuine, we think, oh, he really, really means it. But when the scripture is using this word uh, genuine, it means one who has been approved by the authority of the local church. Paul is is. Paul is lambasting their practice of, they, he can't even tell who's a real Christian and who's not. Everybody's taking the Lord's Supper. There is no distinction between who is in Christ and who is out of Christ. There's no way to tell. You know, and I, I used to work at Chick-fil-A when I, was, when I was much younger. I was a college student. 
I was trying to save up money uh, to, to kind of begin Kennedy and I's family. And I remember one day uh, that we got real, really a big ticket order in. Uh, we, there was like three or four uh, large chicken nugget trays. Those are like 100 bucks a pop. Um, so, you know, this is a big order for us. It's a big one for the day. And I'm sitting through the drive-thru saying, man, I'm going to get recognized for this. Made a big sale, you know. And so this guy drives up in what could be best described as a jalopy. Uh, like a 19, you know, 1979 something or other. Kind of a horrible car. You know, and he drives up. He's got this big $400 order. And I'm like, man, I could really get into this guy. He's got like a real Dave Ramsey mentality. You know, he's got, you know, he's got all this money. He's driving this nasty car. I could get, I could get on with this. We got a real Warren Buffett guy here, you know. And so he hands me, he hands me $400 bills. I put it into, uh, put it in the register, get the receipt. Boom, boom, boom. Hand out the big order. Knocked it down fast. My manager comes over and says, hey, man, let me take the window for a little bit. And uh, so I go, he tells me to go take five, and then he invites me into the office. And uh, he has $400 bills with him and this little strange, like, marker-looking thing that I had never seen before. Didn't know what it was. And uh, he took those $400 bills, and he drew a line on them, and they turned pink. And for those of you who have been in any sort of uh, any sort of money-changing uh, job, you know that that pen is to check for a counterfeit. And lo and behold, uh, they were all counterfeit $100 bills. I had just given away $400 of free chicken. And th that's the sense that this word genuine means. And so what I, wanted, what, I, what I want to communicate to you is this. Being a Christian does not mean self-identifying as one. It means that you are living within uh, the context of a local church under submission to the authority of a local church. There's many problems that can happen when you're, not, uh, when you're not checking to see who is genuine and who is not. Someone could want to be a member of the church for a number of reasons. Maybe their family really wants them to be. And there's pressures coming from the parents or the cousins or whatever. Or someone might even be confused as to what this means. We do membership interviews. This is, this is the way that we are in obedience to this. At, at our church, we conduct membership interviews. We ask, what is your testimony? What is the gospel? What is it that you believe to make sure that this is a genuine believer and not someone who's just confused? But there's, but, so that's the first problem. The second problem, um, look at verse 20. It says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat in and, and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here's the second problem, and it's related to the first. Is that these divisions are not just among the people, but those divisions that we see in the outside culture have moved into the worship of the church. It's moved into the very machinery of how the church functions. In this case, into the very Lord's Supper. You see, the rich, able to leave whenever they wanted to because they had, they had housekeepers, they had slaves to do all the morning's work that needed to be done. Yeah, we could show up early. We're going to bring a picnic basket. You know, we're going to bring our special wine. Uh, but then... Uh, the, the rich would get to do all that, and then the slaves who are, taking care of, who are taking care of the rich's 
duties would get there later. And by then the rich were already, their bellies were already full and they were already drunk on their own wine. They had had their fill and they're gone. They get to leave early. And then uh, those who are not as privileged are eating the leftovers. They're getting the table scraps. They're getting less. And so at the Lord's table, there is a division between the, the rich and the poor. Now, here's the thing. We need to look at our own church and our own culture and see in what ways could we potentially be letting the outside culture dictate the way that we treat one another, the way that we operate in the local church. How could that be happening? And you might agree with me, it's fallen out of fashion to to make divisions between uh, the socioeconomic status. It's it's now frowned upon to turn your nose up at someone for their financial status, right? We couldn't do that in the open. And it's, not, it's out of fashion now to make divisions racially, right? That's, that's, that's largely frowned upon. But the ways that the outside culture, we need to look at the ways that culture is dividing itself. And we're in a new time and a new place where the culture is dividing itself based on self-identity and preferences. You know, I was just watching uh, Hulu the other day. I was watching a show on Hulu and uh, a, a pledge, uh, you know, wipe commercial came on. And right before it played, it said, what ad experience do you prefer? I thought, what a weird, well, this is bizarre. Like there's two ads I can pick from and notice that none is never an option. It's either one or the other, you know, but, and you, you look around at how we're dividing ourselves in our culture, right? We're no longer defining ourselves based on our locality, based on geography, but we're dividing each other based on what we're interested in and how we identify. I'll let you do the, do the heavy lifting here, but uh, how many of you are involved in a special interest group on Facebook or on Instagram? You're following the stay-at-home moms or the homeschoolers. I'm part of the homeschool mamas group. And then there's another group that's part of the, oh, well, I'm, the work, I'm in the working mamas group. And then we've got the guys who are interested in craft beer, and we've got the guys who are interested in fantasy football. We've got the guys, everybody's sectioning each other off. The church, and listen, church, the, the culture was already divided before politics got into it. But we're, we're dividing ourselves based on what, how we identify and what we like. And we need to recognize how that can find its way into the church. You know, when I call you, oftentimes, I'll call, it's my job as the, the children's director here, uh, to, to call and ask someone to serve in childcare. And there's a lot of good reasons to not serve. There's a lot of good reasons to not be able to come. But my least favorite thing to hear, and I know no one's ever going to say it to me again, is that I don't want to. Church, I don't want to hear that. Want is a four-letter word for me when it comes into the children's ministry. I'm not concerned. I didn't ask. That's all I can think about is I never asked. I did not ask if I want to. I asked if you would sacrificially serve. And it's not just the children's ministry. Let me get off my pedestal. When we, go, we have every Saturday, I mean, every one Saturday a month, we go to the park where our kids can play and where we 
can share the good news or just get to know our neighbors. And what I never want to see, what we should never see when we go there, is people who are already into evangelism. People who are already extroverts. We see that, you know, it might occur to you when we announce the, the Engage Saturday, you might look at that slide and say, oh, that's not for me. I'm not really into that. Oh, that's not for me. I don't really like talking to strangers. Church, where did we get the idea that church was supposed to be just a collection of stuff we like? Where did we get the idea that this is a place where we should transform our, the church into our image rather than being transformed by this sacrificial community. Where did we get that idea? It is from the outside culture. We're bringing it in. We need to be wary of this. How can we fight against it? Maybe you're curious. How can I fight against my own preferences? How can I do this? Well, I think first, this is just an easy rule. Whether it comes to uh, who you want to talk to at church or how you want to serve in the church, if your initial reaction, gut reaction is, Ugh, I do not want to do that, you should be the first one to sign up for that opportunity. You should be the first one to go to that person who you don't want to talk to. In fact, that's an informal rule on the staff. And I'm letting you guys into kind of the, the secret stuff here, so forgive me. But if the, the, the rule is, if we've had a hard interaction with someone at the church, or the, someone at the church, we've, we've somehow found out, maybe they've communicated to us that they're upset with us, the thing we do on Sunday morning is we go up, we shake their hand and say, how are you doing, brother? How are you doing, sister? We will not allow those divisions to take place in the church based on our personal preferences and feelings. But that ought to not to be a staff policy. That ought to be a church-wide policy. This is the place where we go to do the things that we are uncomfortable with. You know, one of, one of the things I've shared before in the pulpit is that my first ministry opportunity as an intern at Ashland was to organize children's ministry for a Valentine's date night. This was a huge disappointment to me. I wanted to, I wanted to preach. I wanted to lead a Bible study. It's just not where my interest was. I was the passionate guy. I was, I was ready to talk. I was ready to share. That's not where my interests lie. And that was, the last thing I wanted to do was, was lead on a children's ministry. And the fun, what's funny is, is that God has put, put me in a place where I'm now leading the children's ministry. He has got a hilarious sense of humor. We need to keep ourselves open to the possibility of transformation. We cannot, we cannot look at this church and just settle into the people that we like, the ministries that we already like, the BFGs we already like. We can't settle into that because we will be self-deceived. You see, if you're just doing the things you already like, if you're just talking with the people you like, if you're just hanging out with the people you're, you're, already, you're already comfortable with, you may not even like this church, says Paul. He says, do you despise the church of God? He said, you might not even like Ashland Community Church. You might just like you. We've got to deal with this, church. Now let's see how Paul, uh, Paul wants to, how Paul is going to solve this problem. What is kind of his triage approach to solving the issue? And first, he reminds them that the Lord's Supper is a cause for celebration. Look at verses uh, 23 through 26. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed... Now, wait, let's pause right here. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord's Supper is not a suggestion, Paul is telling us. He's not saying, oh, I had a really good idea for this ritual that would help us to focus on Christ. He's saying the Last Supper, the night when Jesus broke the bread and and poured out the wine, was not the Last Supper. It was actually the First Supper. It is the blueprint for this table. There is, there is a, an indispensable link between this table and the table at the Last Supper, and it is a command of Christ. You see, the Lord's Supper is one of those ordinances, one of those features in the church that we always want to self-define. Well, I don't really like that. You know, I'm, I don't really get much out of the Lord's Supper. I'm not going to go up and take it. I don't really, I'm not really into it. I don't really get it. Do you not see that this table, what Paul is saying is, This has been delivered from Jesus Christ. He doesn't say, you could do this in remembrance of me. He says, do this in remembrance of me. It's a command for all believers. Let's continue in verse 23. It says that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Do you guys not see what Paul is doing here? It's clear that the Corinthian believers, that this church had forgotten what the original table was all about. Rather than a table of of drunkenness and fullness, it was a table that's characterized by betrayal and death and sacrifice. That is the table with which we eat from today. But we also need to remember the, the, the context of the Last Supper. You see, it was the Passover meal. And the Passover, if you're not familiar with that, is... Uh, during, in, in the book of Exodus, uh, Moses, Moses, through the power of the Lord, uh, commands plagues on Egypt. Pharaoh continues uh, to, to keep God's people in prison and until the final plague, which is the death of the firstborn, that an angel of the Lord is going to come and take the life of every firstborn. But here's the catch that all of those God's people who, who uh, take the blood of a lamb and paint it over the doorpost, that spirit of the Lord will pass over. The Passover is viewed as this massive act of salvation. In fact, God tells them, God gives them a command after this miracle, after they're released from Egypt, he says, you can, not only do I want you to practice this, not only do I want you to remember it, but I'm going to give you a feast that you celebrate every single year like clockwork, forever and ever and ever and ever. There's a repetition there that you'd think, man, is this going to get old at some point? I mean, after how many generations are you going to forget? I mean, how many of us know our great-great-great-great-grandfather's name? At some point, aren't we going to lose touch with this act of salvation? But God is aware of our, 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 our propensity to forget to forget the deliverance that we've been given as people. And so he says, when you take this bread, do it in remembrance of me. Now there are some who would say, yes, the Lord's Supper. Uh, Nothing special happens here that you can't get in in your quiet time, in your morning devotional, a visit from God. You know, it's just a memorial. It's just a memorial. Well, it's because we don't understand the way the Bible uses the word Remember, 
You know, we think about when it comes to memory, do I recall it? Like, do I remember what I, what I ate for lunch last Tuesday? No, I don't. But when, when the Bible is talking about remembering in this context, it means something completely different. There's, there's, there's different kinds of memory, but the, the, the best way to explain it is with chicken piccata. You know, when I, was, when I was in seventh grade, I remember my mom brought home a recipe book that she had bought at our, our Catholic school uh, bake sale. She bought a cookbook and she said, Joe, I, you know, I have the night off. I'm going to pick something here uh, to make that's creative. You get to pick. And so I turned to a random page in the book and I found this recipe for this thing called chicken piccata. It's a, it's a lemon infused chicken and pasta dish. It is delicious. But my mother made it and it was delicious and it became a bit of a ritual. It's a family meal. And my mother, still to this day, will come over to my, to my house, and she'll cook chicken piccata. And I'm a grown man. I've got five kids. I've got a job. But as soon as I walk in the door from work, and my mother is visiting, and the aromas of that lemon and that chicken... I'm transported way, I'm transported back. I'm like swinging my feet off of the chair. I'm like coloring. I just feel like a child again. You know, maybe you could think of a meal that your family cooked that is, that has a deeper sense of memory. That meal has the same, this meal at the Lord's table has the same effect on us. It transports us back to that first table where Jesus offered not, not just bread and wine, but his own body and blood for us. He is our new Passover lamb. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, much earlier in the text, he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you, could be, that, that you may be a new lump. And as you're, you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Church, your salvation, if you are in Christ, is gloriously rooted in historical act. Jesus Christ was crucified. There is nothing that can change that. There is nothing that will change that. He is our, he is our Passover lamb, the one whose blood has been shed to pay for our unfaithfulness, whose body was broken so that our bodies could be redeemed and rid of sin. Jesus is that Passover lamb for us. And that's why we come to the table. So that we won't forget. We have to contend with this reality. That in the, the warp and wolf of our life, in the, daily, uh, in the daily routines we get into, we have to look at ourselves and understand our propensity to forget the salvation that we've been given in Christ our problem is forgetfulness. And Jesus has given us, he's commanded us to come to this table so that we would never take the gospel for granted. So that the cross would never just be a point on our doctrinal statement here at this church, but there would be an integral part of the way our church functions, of the way our people communicate with one another, that the gospel would always be on the front of our minds. That is why we have the table, and that is why we do it every single week. But let's, let's, let's move on. Let's look at verses uh, 27 through 34. We'll see that 
this, this table is a cause for celebration because Jesus he even said, even in the night of his own betrayal, he, he gave thanks. The table is a table of celebration. But when we look at, look at verses, verse 27, beginning, it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Yes, we have a glorious picture of the sacrifice that's been offered for us at the table. But Paul is clear. If we come to this table in an unworthy manner, we'll be guilty of a grave sin. But the, what we, what do we, how do we define this unworthiness? Because it's very important. Because some of us think if we have any unconfessed sin, any sin in our lives, we cannot come to this table because we're unworthy. Now, church, I just want to, right from the start, tell you this. If only the righteous could come. If only those without sin could come, no one would come to the table. Pastor Casey and Pastor Josh wouldn't pick up the elements. They couldn't even lay hands on it. We all come to the table with sin, but we need to remember the context in which Paul's writing. He's writing about this unworthiness that where there's a self-centered, um, others-despising orientation to the table. You see, these Corinthian, the, the rich Corinthians were despising those who were poor, who they viewed as less than. They weren't fellowshipping with them. They weren't speaking with them. You know, they might have been in, you know, as they're heading out, they'll see the, the you know, the, the slaves and then the tradespeople coming in. And they'd say, man, I'm really glad the church is doing that. But they're not living in part of covenant life with them. They're despising them. So if you've come with that sort of selfish, oh, look at me, uh, I deserve to be here. I deserve to take the Lord's Supper, but, but these people don't. He says, don't come. Or if you're one of those who has not been approved, one of those who, who has not submitted to the authority of the local church, one who has not been verified, has not been uh, verified to be a Christian, you shouldn't come. Why? Why shouldn't you come? He says, that's why many of you who come un with unworthy, he says, that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. You know, church, every week before we give out the elements, before uh, Pastor Casey and Pastor Josh uh, officiate the Lord's Supper, we do something that's really no one noticed when we were doing the Lord's Supper four times a year, but we've gotten a lot of questions about since it's become a weekly practice. And that is our fencing of the table. That, that's when they say, um, if, you are, if you're not a Christian, don't take the supper. If you're, if you're not a member of a church, one who, has been, one who has been verified, don't come. The reason we do that is not because we're mean. And it's not because we want to be exclusive. Paul is clear. If you take this supper in an unworthy manner, without true faith and genuine repentance, your soul is not just in jeopardy, but he says, you're going to get sick. You're going to get hurt. You might even die. When we tell you, when we, when we make it clear who should come to the table and who should not, 
We're trying to protect you. Protect you from the judgment of God for blaspheming this meal. So please, do what Paul says. Examine yourself. Know if you're truly in Christ. Please, examine yourself so you might not be judged. At the table, we're given the opportunity to repent, to turn away from our sin. But listen, God will deal with your sin one way or another. If not on his cross, you will be punished for it. And not just in the eternal judgment, but even in these moments. Look with me in verses 33 through 34. Paul finishes here. He says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about these other things, I'm going to give directions when I come. So he gives them two things to take away. He's going to give them more instruction on how to get the church back together when he actually comes, but he says, here's the first things you can do while I'm waiting. He's kind of, he's like, here's the, here's the first aid uh, to the problems that are happening uh, with the Lord's Supper. The first thing he says, wait for one another. And if you're rich, don't, don't bring your own feast. Don't bring your own wine and drink it to excess. Just have a simple meal like everyone else. He's telling them to forfeit their own rights for the good of the body. He's telling them to say no to what they could have for the good of others. You know, one of my favorite things that we hear around here when people visit is they say, it's just like a family here. It's like a family. It's a real community. And we, I agree with that. You know, there's, because there's lots, of, there's lots of tangible benefits to having a family, a, a, a church family. One where we're not anonymous, but one where we genuinely care for one another. Where we know each other's names, where we're checking in with each other about their health concerns or about, you know, how their fantasy football team is doing, whatever. It's, it's great to come here and to be among a people that we know and love. Now, I remember my first week of work at... Um, at the Rawlings Company, which is where I work currently. The CEO, the now CEO of my company came in and he was just kind of getting to know all of us. And uh, we were sharing like fun facts about ourselves. And uh, he said, you know, it got to me and I didn't even get to speak. My, my, my training classmates already said this because at the time I was, uh, I was 27 and they were like, and you know, it's like a classroom full of like millennials and Gen Z in there. They're like, He's 27 and he already has three kids. You know, that's like a slow Tuesday for some of y'all back when you grow up, you know. But for them, they're like, what? How could this be? How could these things be? You know, it's, it's not that many. But it was amazing to them. But, uh, you know, he said to me, he said, I worry about guys like you. He said, I'm worry, I worry about guys like you because you won't be able to commit yourself 100% to here to this place, to your work, to your career. At first, I got a little upset, you know. I, you know, I worked a little extra hard just to kind of prove them wrong. But you know, the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized he's right. I've taken a wife. I've got children. That means my loyalties are a bit divided. That means I can't stay late at work every night and work until the, to, until the you know, the midnight oil. I can't burn the midnight oil. 
You know, and I can't come in super early because I've got to, to make breakfast and I've got to do other things and I've got to take care of my concerns uh, for the church. But he's, he's right in saying this, that for all the benefits there are to having a family, all of the love, all of the privilege it is to have my wife and children in my life, with every true relationship that we would call family, that we would call genuine community, there comes limitations. There comes things that we have to give up. I think as we enjoy the family life here at Ashland Community Church, it's fun to enjoy all the benefits of the community, but what I think we have trouble coming to grips with is the limitations that come with it. And that means sometimes you're going to have to change a few diapers over there. That means that uh, sometimes uh, you're going to have to you're going to have to go talk to strangers at the park when you really don't want to. That means that, uh, you know, you're going to have to make time and go to BFG when you'd rather, you know, watch the football game. There is a cost to this family to be a part of this. But the only alternative is to starve. Now, church, um, you may, uh, that, that's, that's the end of the sermon as a whole, but you may be walking away with a bit of confusion because I feel like I might have left you thinking two different things. We talked about earlier that the table is a table of celebration, that this is a table of rejoicing, of giving thanks, but there's also a need for repentance, a need for self-examination, and you might be wondering what I think everybody wonders when they come to the table is how should I feel right now? How should, I, how should I be thinking through this? And the answer is not simple. It's actually quite emotionally complex. Now, when it comes to emotional complexity, I'm certainly not the man for the job. So I'm going to let uh, John Newton, the poet, hymn writer, have the last word. So this is how we should come to this table in light of what we've heard today. He writes, In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his heavy eyes on me when near his cross I stood. Surely never till my last breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins had spilt his blood and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I die that so you might live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled, that I would such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. Let's pray together.